Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Thank you. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Father, it's a blessing uh, to come together and to come before your word. God, we pray uh, that our minds and hearts would be attentive uh, to your will, to your word, to your spirit's work. God, we confess on our own, our hearts are very hard and resistant uh, to the work of your Spirit. And so we trust in you today, knowing that only you uh, can change our hearts. Lord, we uh, have been humbled in many ways by the book of James and your, your Spirit's work through it. And so we pray that uh, we would continue to lean on you and trust in you, uh, even as you work among us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Courtney, doctor, is a Bible study teacher and wrote a, a study on James, and she uh, imagined a scenario with her five-year-old that I think would apply to any of us with, with young kids or anybody who uh, has young grandkids or nieces or nephews, or if you just know a kid, you probably can picture this scenario uh, like she imagined. She imagined a, a fi- her five-year-old coming to her as a parent and coming up with this plan, waking up one day, and so she wants to picture the kid in your mind waking up one day and coming to a parent and saying, hey, today uh, I'm going to go to the park, and tomorrow uh, I'm going to go swimming, and then the next day I'm going to go to the movie theater. Now, as a five-year-old uh, making those kind of plans uh, to a parent, a parent would kind of have to laugh a little bit. It's kind of funny for a five-year-old to kind of make those kind of ambitious plans. Nothing, there's nothing wrong with those plans. In fact, if that five-year-old asked the parent for those kind of things, those are good things, the parent, to the degree they can, would say, that's a great thing. Well, I would love to be able to, to do that. But they have to ask, right? A five-year-old does not have the, the power, the capacity to, to, to take on those kinds of plans on their own. As ambitious as they may be, a child is fully dependent upon someone else to make their plans happen. And when we see a child trying to make plans, they can't do it. It's almost, it's almost laughable. And yet, that child probably actually, our children probably understand their dependence better than most adults do. Am I right? We as adults, now that we are grown and we have a driver's license and we've got a car and the capacity to put some gas in it and the capacity to buy some movie tickets, we can make all kinds of plans. We can lay out all kinds of things, not just for the next three days, but the next three years, next 30 years. We can come up with all kinds of plans. And yet, children and adults alike, we are all in the same boat. We are fully dependent upon someone else to make all of our plans happen or not happen. 
It is easy for us as we grow and mature and get you know, certain capacities and understandings, it's easy for us to forget that God and God alone is in charge of everything we do in every part of our life. God and God alone is in charge of every breath, every step, every plan, every decision, everywhere we go at all times and all places. We are not ultimately in charge. God is. As we come to the last few weeks of our study in the book of James, we've, we've come, uh, to, we come to these two paragraphs, two sections of James that are very closely related. Uh, they're connected, they're, they're about our plans and our possessions. And in both places, James calls us out for selfish arrogance, our self-focused, self-centered attitude. And that builds off what we saw at the end uh, of the section last week about how our quarrels and our fights come from this selfishness and desires and passions in us. And so here, that same, same root cause of our own self-centeredness leads to a couple of the errors in the way that we plan and the way we handle our possessions. And I think it's an interesting way this shows up in our culture. You know, in our culture today, uh, we face a different kind of atheism. Maybe at least a, a generation ago, I mean, this still happens, but a generation ago, when you thought of atheists, you probably thought primarily of people who are combative, people who have a, a certain list of theological, uh, not theological, phil phil philosophical or scientific reasons why they say there is no God. And that, of course, still exists today. But I think there's a much bigger group of people who are atheists and don't even call themselves atheists because they don't really think about it. <laughs> The people that I'm thinking of today are the people who just kind of go through life functionally, practically as atheists. People who act like there is no God, act like eternity is not really a thing. They're just living for the moment and going through life, doing their own thing, going to the next thing on the calendar, the next thing they've scheduled out, and living as if there is no God. And the reason I, I bring that group up to you is that I think that attitude seeps into a Christian's life more often than we like to admit. Many times we go through life, though with our mouths and with our Sunday morning attendance and with other things, we proclaim to be Christians. How often do we live as functional atheists, practical atheists, living as if there is no God? And here James calls us when we consider our calendar and our checkbook, our plans and our possessions, are we living as if God really is God? Or are we living as functional, practical atheists? Our passage this morning challenges us specifically in those areas. Do we recognize that just like children, we are fully dependent? Or do we live like we are managing our own life on our own? As he calls us on our plans and possessions, he wants us to see this sinful desire, this self-centered arrogance, and come to honor God in the way we live as Christians. So when it comes to our plans, here's, I think, the call for us. Uh, if, you're, if you want to fill this out in your, in your bulletin, you've got an outline there. Make plans not in self-serving arrogance, but in humble submission to God's will. Make plans, but do so not in self-serving arrogance, but in humble submission to God's will. Don't make plans in self-serving arrogance. Verse 13, he says, this is uh, chapter 4, verse 13, he says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now, if you just read that sentence by itself, it does not really seem that alarming. This sounds like a very logical, uh, normal business strategy. 
this merchant of this time that he's thinking of has a plan. They've got some kind of goods, some kind of service, something they can go, and they have figured out if they go to this town, this one area, and they spend some time there, about a year or so, they should be able to sell their stuff and make a profit. And that sounds like a very reasonable business plan. What is so wrong with that, James? Why are you picking on the business people? He's not picking on them by, by just because they're business people. What he's getting at is their heart level. And we get, a, we get a, a clue on that when you get down to verse 16. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. Over and over we see throughout the Bible, especially here in James, we've been studying, it, it's, it's less about the surface and more about the heart that motivates the things we do. And so here it is. Just like a, a five-year-old can't actually make plans on their own, we can't make these kind of plans. And a five-year-old, we would just say they're naive. They don't understand. But we as adults, we're old enough. And when we, when we make plans that we feel like we act like we can do this all by ourselves, it's not just being naive. It's being arrogant. It's being arrogant. But what's wrong with the plans for the business person in verse 13 is not actually what all's in there as much as what's not in there, what's not included in his plans. He leaves out quite a few things. One of these is that we don't know the future. Verse 14, James says, you do not know what tomorrow brings. You, you make plans as if you can predict the future. And he says, you, you have no, no way of knowing what is coming tomorrow. Now, we have, we have smartphones and smart meteorologists and smart stock predictors. And so we can get into the mindset sometimes that, you know, hey, I watch the trends in culture and I watch the trends in politics and, and I talk to all the best meteorologists and I have 16 weather apps on my phone and, and I can tell you what's coming this week. We, we can live with an, with an attitude of saying, I, I think I know. I got a general idea of, of what's coming in the future. And God has created the world in such a way there's some order and, and structure to the world where there are patterns that we can anticipate. And, and that does seem to happen. The more often than not, we can kind of generally have an idea of the way certain things are going until we don't, until we're wrong, which happens all the time. There are unexpected floods and hurricanes, unexpected wars and invasions, unexpected tragic shootings, unexpected medical conditions, unexpected stock market changes, unexpected pregnancies, and unexpected surprise birthday parties. There's all kinds of things that come in the future that we don't see coming. And in our arrogance, we forget that and we pretend like we can anticipate the future. Similarly, John, James reminds us that our lives are temporary. Verse 14, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Maybe the, the, the little bit cooler spring type feeling morning reminds you. I, the, the, it's been so hot recently, you may forget that this was possible. But in the winter, if you can think back to what that's like, there are some mornings where you can walk out and breathe and see your breath, right? You remember that? I know it seems like a long time ago now, but you can see your breath. How long is that, that mist there? It is, it is a flash, and it's gone. And over and over again, that's the image God, God's Word uses for our lives. Like a flower of the field, or like a mist of the air, that is our lives. And that is so easy for us to forget. Because for thousands and thousands of days now, you have woke up. You're, you've got a pattern to this. I did the math, just out of curiosity. I've been alive best I can count, 12,162 days as of today. Aren't you proud? I've made it to this benchmark. 12,162 days. So for over 12,000 days, I have woken up. Every, every one of those. That's a lot of days in a row. And it can be easy when you get to that number to start to think, you know what? I, 
for the last 12,000, it's been like this. So why would tomorrow be any different? And we forget that we are not promised tomorrow. Compared to, to eternity, compared to the, the grand scheme of things, we are a, a dot on the timeline. We are so infinitesimally small. And it's easy for us to forget that. Should we not be humbled by every natural disaster near and far? Should we not be humbled by every cancer diagnosis we hear of? Should we not be humbled by every car wreck we're a part of or we see? Should we not be humbled every time we hear of a near-death experience of someone we know? If those don't humble us enough, let what should humble us from the beginning humble us, and that is the Word of God. God's Word is meant to keep us humble that we are not promised tomorrow. We are not promised our, uh, the next 50 years. Our lives are a mist, and we cannot presume upon God's grace. We have to consider God. We have to consider God. And that's James's next reminder. Who, who knows our future? Who knows how many days we have? Who has numbered every single one of our days before one of them came to pass? Psalm 139 tells us God. God is in charge. In verse 15, James corrects the way that they should be making plans and says, If the Lord wills. All of our plans, 100% of all of our plans, are subject to the will of God. The Lord God alone, He alone is in charge of our future, of our days, of what happens. He's in charge of our plans. He's in charge of our goals. In the Old Testament, uh, in Daniel chapter 4, a man named King Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that lesson a pretty hard way. If you know that story, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that kind of scares him, and so he invites Daniel, who he knows interprets dreams, and Daniel would come in, and he tells him what it is, and yet still Nebuchadnezzar doesn't turn from his ways because a year later, 12 months after that dream, Nebuchadnezzar is up on top of his royal palace and looking over the great Babylon. He says, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And God spoke to him in that very moment and said, What, what I had promised a year ago is now coming to pass. Nebuchadnezzar loses his, his mental capacity. He, he has, becomes like an animal out in the fields. He has lost all sanity. And the reason he does that over and over, the refrain over and over through Daniel 4, is that this will happen, it says, until you recognize that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of men, and He gives them to whom He will. Nebuchadnezzar thinks, I'm on this throne because I put myself here. And God makes it clear, no, no, no. You have nothing apart from what I give you. And if that is true for Nebuchadnezzar, it is true for all of us. Our kingdom may be smaller. We may not have a high and mighty palace and throne and city, but you have some kingdom, some small world you're over, and it can be tempting, no matter how small it is, to start taking credit for it and saying, look at what I have built. God and God alone is sovereign over all the kingdoms of men, and He gives them to whomever He pleases. Anytime in any way that we ignore God, we're ignoring he, His sovereignty and His control. So James warns us, do not make plans in selfish, self-serving arrogance. You don't, own the don't know the future. Your life is amidst, and God is in charge of that. So you could hear that and say, yeah, you know what? With the tongue thing, I just want to put duct tape over my tongue, my mouth. And, you know, I study James, what James says about the tongue. So when it comes to plans, I'm just going to not make any plans. Here, you're right. I don't want to make arrogant plans, so I'm just going to wake up every day and fly by the seat of my pants and just live life. Now, before the type A people in the world, like, like my wife and Dan Perry, have a stroke, uh, I'm not actually recommending that, and neither does James. James does not recommend just throwing out all plans. 
In fact, quite the opposite. He tells us to plan. Verse 15, instead you ought to say. So he's telling you, this is what you should say. This is a command. He's, he's recommending. This is what you should do. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Saying, we will do this or that, is a plan. He's telling you, you should make plans. So don't not make plans. You should make plans. But what matters is the condition of your heart as you're making those plans. You submit these plans to God, and we do it in submission to His will. He, if He wills, God, if you allow it, here's the plan that I am making. This is about a posture of the heart, trusting God, relying on God as we make these plans. It's a posture that keeps God at the forefront of our minds as we plan for what's coming down the road. It's a posture that tries to, to make God first, not just an attachment. God, God is the driver of, of, in the driver's seat of our life. God is not the things that we just put in the luggage rack of our car, right? You ever take a family vacation and put a luggage rack? I'm like against this because I just feel like if it doesn't fit in the car, we shouldn't bring it, right? But the luggage rack is what you get to add on. It's like all the stuff that you probably didn't need, but you might need it. And so you get the luggage rack so you can put it on top. And it's just like the, the extra stuff. How often do we make our plans and we're like, oh yeah, God, uh, too full, luggage rack. I'll put him up there. When we make plans and treat God that way, we're, we're, we're missing the point. God's, God's the driver of the car. He's not in the luggage rack. So many times we treat God as secondary, not primary. James 4.15 is where we get the phrase, Lord willing, as in I'll see you next week, Lord willing. So uh, we've learned from James, and like we've said, that James is focused on the heart. So James is not telling you that every single time you put something in your calendar in your phone, you need to put it, you know, hey, lunch with, lunch with Wanda, Lord willing, you know, there's my plans, and, and uh, I'll see you next week, Lord. You don't have to say that after every single time uh, that you say something, because that, that could become a cliche that we are just living in as a hypocrite. But it's not a bad idea every now and then to say that, to remind yourself all things uh, are really in submission to God's will. So, Lord willing, I'll be there, because if He doesn't will it, I really won't, right? But He's not talking about just some kind of like verbal thing we add on to our plans to, to take our own ideas and just kind of baptize it by saying some Jesus words and say, okay, now these plans are holy because I said the right, right little, little thing after it. No, that's not the point. He's saying we're trying to submit. We've got to submit as a posture of our heart. Well, who's in charge of our plans? James is echoing the same thing Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not what I want, not, not my will, your will be done, Heavenly Father. It's the same thing Jesus commanded. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Make your plans in humble submission to God's will. What, what does that look like on a really practical level? As you make plans for your life, as you strategize and, and think about what's to come, what does it look like to make plans in humble submission to God's will? The, the first thing I would say is that if your plans go directly against God's revealed will in the Bible, then it is not according to the will of God. And here's what I mean by that. If God has spoken and said that the decision you're trying to make is a sin issue, then His will is very clear. So the extreme example should you steal a car today? You don't have to like sit and ponder and pray over that for long hours. You just need to read your Bible. Thou shalt not steal. Okay, it's answered for you, right? You should, you should just read it and discover that. 
But on, on a more realistic level, we actually wrestle with stuff like this all the time and, and don't always come to the Bible and say, if God has spoken on this, then His will is, is clear. His will is clear. So, for example, the, one of the ones that just plagues so many people, it's, it's heartbreaking and difficult and, and complex at times, but on relational plans, plans about who you should date and marry, and, and especially if it's a non-Christian, plans about when to sleep together, plans about divorce and remarriage, God speaks to all these things. These are not hidden things from God. Now, it would, of course, take a whole different sermon to go into all of that and explain all of that. But my point here is just that these are revealed things. These are things in God's Word that speak to the moral right and wrongs according to God's plans. So if God has spoken against it, His will is clear. Or He's spoken for it. And His will is clear. But submitting things to God... We're supposed to submit all, all things to God, and sometimes they are not those kind of things, not the moral things about right or wrong. So many of our plans are not moral. They're just a fork in the road, a left or right, at just a moment of wisdom, not moral things. So what college to go to, what job to take, when to try to have kids, to buy a house or rent a house, how to spend your time off from work. You can do sinful things in any decisions you make, but many times our decisions are not, you know, holy or, or sinful. They're just different. So how do we humbly submit to God's will in those places? Well, one, one of, I think, our chief things in, in submitting to God's will is that with our lives, we're seeking to grow in holiness and wisdom. I came across just, I love, I love this verse this week. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, for this is the will of God. Like, that's got my attention, right? That's a big red flag. Like, oh, you're going to tell me the will of God? Okay, I'm paying attention. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. I love that. How clear and simple is that? You want, to, you want to learn God's will? Be more holy. Be more like Jesus. That's the will of God. I'm not the first person to say this, that God cares more about who you are than what you do. Do you believe that? God is about your heart. He's about your character. He's about the quality, that the, the, the kind of person you're becoming. Are you becoming more like Christ or more like the world? God cares about so many things in the world, and so are we, are our priorities being aligned with His? Or are we just shaping our desires and our affections after the things of the world? Are we being made more like Jesus or more like the world? Do we care about the things He care about? Do we, do we plan and seek and desire to do things that, that He is seeking after? Are we seeking after His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven? As we leer, live in, in fear of, reverence, all of Him, that's the beginning to wisdom, right? It's the beginning when we honor Him, we fear Him, and grow in relationship with Him. And as we do that, and hopefully surround ourselves with good and wise people, we grow in wisdom to be able to make those decisions, rent or buy, left or right, what college, what job. Those are, may not be moral decisions, but we can grow in wisdom and in holiness and begin to just do this. Go, act, do something, make a decision, make a plan, take initiative. We're not called to be lazy or slothful or indecisive. Sometimes people will say, oh, I'm, I'm praying about it as, as an excuse for just not making a decision <laughs> or getting out of something, you know. Don't, don't blame God for being indecisive, okay. We should pray about it. Don't hear, mishear me. We should pray about it, absolutely. But then we should go and act. Now, it's a bit of a paraphrase and a little bit taken out of context, but Augustine, one of the early church theologians, uh, gets quoted as saying this, love God and do what you please. <laughs> the order is important, Right? But I think there's some truth there. Love God and then do what you please. Now, one of the biggest things, I think, on submitting our, to God's will 
and certainly the one I, I feel most convicted about so far this week, is that yes, seek wisdom, seek counsel, you know, figure it as best you can, and you've got to make a decision. At some point, you've got to just pull the trigger and go, right? And then when you make the plans, make those plans in pencil, not pen. And what I mean by that is be flexible, be flexible. Dan tells everybody goes on a mission trip, hey, if you're going to have a successful mission trip, you've got to know this, be flexible, because <laughs> everything changes. But I think that is true not just for mission trips, that is true for all of life. Don Sanukian, a seminary professor, wrote one of our preaching books, and uh, he, he wrote this about this passage in James. He says, make your plans in pencil and know that God has the eraser. He also has a pen to write what he wants in ink. If we're going to submit our plans to God, it means I, I may have, to the best of my abilities, made a, a wise and godly decision about this, and then it all change. It all change. How many times has God, if you try to count the number of times God changed your plans? Hundreds? Thousands of times? If you're like me, you've been alive 12,000 days. He's probably changed my plans 12,000 times, right? He is all the time shifting things that we didn't know. It may not have been a wrong decision we made, but he is at work changing things according to our, from our perspective. He always knew it, but he is at work. Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. I want to be, and sometimes I can be, I want to be the kind of flexible, easygoing guy that when things change, I can roll with it. But that's not my nature. <laughs> that is not my nature. I like to make a plan and stick to it and see it through. Uh, a couple weeks ago, the alternator in my truck went out on a day where I was trying to get to Bowling Springs, and we were going to take my in-law's RV, and we had all these things lined up, and getting delayed all these hours was just really throwing things off. And by God's providence, because he's so kind in my ignorance, he put Aaron Dyer like right next door to where I was going to be or when, my, when my truck broke down. And so Aaron came and helped me out, and then in that course of helping me out, he found a very kind and gentle way to say, like, you're not handling the stress of this very well. Like, this, this seems to be overwhelming you. Are you okay? You know? And, and there was nothing wrong. My kids were safe. The truck actually was not that, you know, it's not a big a deal. It's just an alternator. It's not, not a big a deal. But it messed up my plans, and I had a plan, and this isn't like I wanted it to go. When we do that, when I do that, what we're saying is, God, your, your plan's not good enough. I had a plan, and my plan was better. I had something better in mind, and you're messing it up. We're not trusting that God is God. We want to be God. I want to be God. But Ephesians 1.11 tells us, God works all things, alternators included, all things according to the counsel of His will. And for those of us that are Christians, there's good news. Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Whether it's alternators or cancer or tornadoes or whatever else, if we come into this and say, this, this, this isn't, no, it needs to go my way. We're doubting the goodness of God. We don't trust His control and His care and His love. We don't trust that He is in charge and that He can make things go the best way. Can we make our plans with pencil and trust God to be in charge of the eraser and the pen? Make plans not in self-serving arrogance, but in humble submission to God's will. That's how He wants us to approach making plans. And James makes a very similar, related way of describing how we should handle our possessions. Use possessions not for self-indulgent luxury, but for generous justice. Use possessions not for self-indulgent luxury, but for generous justice. Now, as you heard James 5, 
uh, read, or maybe as you go back and read that, you may be tempted to say, look, it is addressing rich people. I'm not rich, therefore I can just skip these six verses, right? And, and even more so, I think as you study this, I'm not sure these, these people that he's addressing, this camp, I'm not sure they're Christians. There's not really many redeeming qualities in James 5, 1 to 6 when he's describing this group of people. So you could say, ah, I'm, I'm a Christian and I'm poor. I really don't have to listen to these verses. Well, James wrote it. God intended it to be in God's word. And James is writing in such a way that he may, not everybody who heard this, heard this was, was rich, but it's like he wanted you to overhear the way he was describing people who were rich so that our hearts aren't tempted to go after that. How much of the, the water we swim in, the air we breathe in as a world, says here's the ma- one of the main things you've got to do in life is get rich, or, or maybe we won't say rich, but get to a place of comfort. Get, get enough material things where you're comfortable. You're pursuing the, the material riches of the world. It, it's just like all the, we're supposed to have a plan, have a structure to all of our life, and get rich along the way. That's the air we breathe in our culture. And James is warning us. He's raising a flag. say, hey, careful. You may not think yourself rich now, but if you're chasing after these things, you're going to face the same temptations they face. Not to mention, though, that many of us in this country, compared to the rest of the world, are very, very wealthy. So be careful to not let ourselves off the hook. James 5, uh, 2 and 3, he says, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And he continues and says, You have laid up treasure. What, what do you treasure? Where is your heart when it comes to your treasures? What is of greatest value to you? If you are stockpiling material possessions, it is going to be very hard for your heart to not be hardwired to those things, to not treasure those things from a deep place in your heart. We, in the last 2,000 years, have gotten better at making clothes. Our material possessions are better constructed. And yet, just like James says, eventually... It will all corrode. Many of us saw the same video this week from Yellowstone as that uh, the river was overflowing. And you watch this beautiful house on stilts that was previously had a great view and right there on the river. Well, I'm sure it was a well-constructed house. And yet as the river, rivers overflowed its bank and came, came just so swiftly moving, this enormous house goes falling into the river and goes flying down it. It might as well have been a Lincoln Log house. I mean, just destroyed by the river and our heart breaks for those kind of home the homeowners there but let us not think that just because our house is not next to a river and we don't have as many floods around here that our possessions are somehow infinitely more long-lasting eventually in this world it's all passing away and if our hearts are focused in stockpiling things they're focused in the wrong place it's the same temptation of me self-focused arrogance pride he explains that they they are focused on Uh, luxurious self-indulgence. Verse 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. And I recognize the word luxury is kind of a a little bit relative, you know. Uh, A few of us would describe ourselves as living in in luxury, and yet too much of the world indoor plumbing is like the standard of luxury, right? So be careful not to let ourselves off the hook. Are we focused on self-indulgence? Are we using our possessions just to pad our own desires and wishes and wants. It's especially sinful if we're doing that in such a way that takes advantage of other people. In verse 4, he talks about the fraud they're committing. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears 
of the Lord of hosts. What an image he uses to describe how bad this is. There's a picture of a people who, uh, somebody who's a landowner, and has lots of people who works that, and some of the money he was supposed to pay to his workers is still in his bank account. And so James gives a voice to those gold coins. He wants you to hear those gold coins that are sitting in the, in the bank account. Those gold coins are crying out to God. And that voice is joining the voice of the people who have just worked in the harvest and didn't get paid. And together they're crying out about this injustice. And that harmony of voices, that chorus of voices, is making it to the ears of the one who could do something about it. The Lord of hosts. James imagines that this cry is coming out. And it's coming out in, against this group of people who is committing an injustice. They're more focused on their possessions, their wealth, their selfish desires, and it's hurting people around them. Because of our, our lifestyles, we, we may not uh, think, of, think of the extremes here of, of, of the overindulgence, but don't let Satan take away this same warning, the same temptation that could be in all of us. If we hold back something that belongs to somebody else, it is sitting in our pockets crying out about injustice. We should be a group of people who are seeking to love other people with our stuff, not hold it back. So often the ideal is to be rich and comfortable, and yet we should be a people who is generous. The Bible over and over again warns us about riches. One pastor, um, Kent Hughes, kind of summarized that. I hadn't come across this phrase before. I thought it was so good. The way that over and over again, the Bible doesn't say that money is bad. Money, money can be a very good tool. But he warns us, the Bible warns us, he says uh, that wealth is not an advantage in the Bible, it is a spiritual handicap. And I think he's right. I think people who have more have, have one more thing to make sure that, that they're honoring God with. If you have less, you got one less thing to worry about. And so he says, be warned, be careful. If you have a lot, be careful. If you have an abundance of possessions, that is something your heart is tempted by. It doesn't have to be. You can be using it for really good things. But be careful, be warning. Just as somebody could live a selfish lifestyle in the way they plan their calendars, so we could do it the way we use our possessions. In both cases, we could be practical atheists, living as if God doesn't matter, eternity is not real, suffering isn't important, I'm just focused on myself. But as Christians, we're called to love God and love neighbor. So what's the opposite of, of living in such a way that our possessions are, are for ourselves? Well, I borrowed a phrase from a, a Tim Keller book, a, a title from a Tim Keller book, um, to live with generous justice. I think that's the opposite of using our possessions for our good. Whatever possessions you have, I think the Bible would, use, uh, would describe them that they should be tools, not trophies. Whatever possession you have, it should be a tool to use an instrument that God would want to use for good, not something you just sit back and admire like a, a piece of art in, muse, in a museum. I'm not saying that just as a way to get a new tool for Father's Day, although it's not a bad idea. Just saying. No, whatever we have, whatever we have, God, it should be a means, not an end. These people who made a profit, that was the goal. That was it. Just make a profit, period. That's the goal. That's it. No, no, no. Whatever we make, that's just a, a means. It's just a tool to use for something greater. Whatever you have, it's an opportunity to steward it for the sake of the kingdom of God. We are citizens of that kingdom. We're called to steward whatever we have for those purposes. And this, James could not, could not make this any more serious. James 5.1, he warns us about those who are living a self-indulgent lifestyle, saying that we should howl for the miseries that are coming. God is our judge. He is the one listening to the cries of injustice. And he, know, he wants you to know there's a whole host of angels. He's the Lord of hosts, a whole host of angels, and he can bring justice to us. 
There's a word here, uh, I think, of, uh, of judgment for those that are rich. There's also a word here of comfort for any who have experienced uh, the opposite side of that, that have been oppressed, those who have been, those who have been uh, taken advantage of and experienced uh, any kind of injustice. Maybe it wasn't as extreme as these cases, but whatever the case may be, God hears our prayers, God hears our cries, and He is at work. Whether it's our plans or our possessions, God is in charge, and we're called to submit all things to Him because He is the one who has taken all the things. He, the Bible says he, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God, God has everything He could ever need. You can't give something to God He doesn't already have. And yet the God who had everything gave everything for you and me. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, 8 and 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. <clears throat> the pattern of the gospel is that God who had so much, the infinite riches, gave it away so that you could know Him. Whatever plans you have, whatever possessions you have, God calls you to submit it to Him so that He can use you for great good. Robert Mouché is a, um, was a Scottish pastor long ago, and uh, he wrote about Acts 20.35, which says, The Lord Jesus uh, said, It is more blessed to give than receive. He's, he wrote this. I want to I end with this. He says, Now, dear Christians, some of you pray night and day to be branches of the true vine. You pray to be made all over in the image of Christ. And if so, you must be like Him in giving. Though He was rich, yet for our sake He became poor. You might object, saying, My money is my own. Christ might answer, My blood is my own. My life is my own. Then where should we have been? You might object, The poor are undeserving. Christ might have said, they are wicked rebels. Shall I lay down my life for these? No, I will give it to good angels. But no, he left the 99 and came to the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. We might object and say the poor might misuse it. Christ might have said, yea, with far greater truth, Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under his feet, that most would despise it, that many would take it as an excuse for sinning all the more. And yet he gave his blood. Oh, dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the vile, to the poor, to the thankless, to the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. It is not your money I want, but your happiness. Remember his own reward. It is more blessed to give than receive.